Over the last few Sundays, we have been steadily working our way through the book of Acts on Sunday morning and exploring all that God has for us in this remarkable book of the New Testament. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, let's turn to Acts chapter 9 as we're reading that well-known passage of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And those of you who are sharp-eyed will already notice that in this passage, of course, the Apostle Paul is called Saul. And it's later on in the New Testament that he is called Paul, sometimes Saul, sometimes Paul. The temptation is to think in the popular mindset that his name was changed when God first broke into his life. But that's not the case. And isn't that interesting? Because that's somehow lurking in the back of our minds. But here we see the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. And it's a remarkably exciting and dramatic narrative this morning. And we're reading verses 1 through to 19. And Luke is writing in verse... One And he's been talking about the church in Jerusalem and what has been happening there. And as we turn to chapter 9, he writes, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus. And so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias... Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, 
he regained his strength. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Last Sunday morning, as we explored together Acts chapter 5, I somewhat clumsily suggested that as you grow and mature in your faith, there may be some parallels in learning how to surf. And as we came towards the end of our message on Sunday morning last, I suggested that in growing in your faith can be a little disconcerting, especially in those early days. And it's a little like learning to balance yourself on a first surfboard. And as you learn to surf, not only do you learn to balance, you learn to fall properly. And the third thing you learn to do is this, that when you hit the water and you begin to sink towards and move towards the seabed, that you suddenly discover that the turbulence and the power of the waves will sometimes push you in one direction, sometimes push you in another. And you will become disorientated and uncertain which way is up and which way is down. And I try to make the point that sometimes that's what happens as you grow and develop and mature in your faith. You learn how to pray. You learn how to persevere. You learn that when you've been knocked off your balance, God is right there holding you and protecting you and helping you to stand. And I finally said last Sunday morning that as you learn to surf, eventually, once you learn the basics, you look out into deeper water where the white waves are. And the deep waves are found. And then eventually, as you make your way out there and you've learned the basics, you, with persistency, learn to ride the waves. And what you eventually discover is this, that as a wave is coming, you learn not to run from it, but rather you learn to lean in on it. You maintain your balance, and eventually you learn how to keep your balance and ride the crest of a wave. And that was the experience spiritually of the young church since the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, then all the way through last week to chapter 5 when we saw the apostles and the entire group of disciples were arrested, put in prison, flogged, their back was up against the wall. And here was God showing faithfulness in the most difficult of times. And as we finished last Sunday morning, I suggested to you, you may well be sitting there saying, Richard, that was fine way back then for the apostles. But Richard, I am not an apostle. I don't have that kind of faith. My faith isn't that large. It is not that well attuned. And I tried to make the point it's not about the amount of faith that you have, but rather it's about the object of your faith. And that was exactly the case for those early Christians as they went through difficult and challenging days. The risen Christ was the object of their faith. And since last Sunday morning, several months have passed in our study of Acts, and we're jumping from Acts chapter 5 to Acts chapter 9, and some of you get frustrated with me and say, Richard, why can't we just slow down and take each section of Scripture section by section? Because we are doing a helicopter ride 
over the book of Acts. Some Sunday mornings we'll stop and hover and look in great detail at a particular passage, and we're about to do that this morning. Other Sundays we will... In fact, sadly, speed over several passages in a row. And since last Sunday, what has happened in Acts has been this. In Acts chapter 6, you discover the calling of the first deacons. And the early church were inundated with people as they sought to live out their faith and serve their community and the city of Jerusalem. And as they began to serve those in need, the numbers of those in need were rising but also were the numbers of those who were trusting in Christ for their salvation. And so they put together a group of people, first called deacons, to serve those in need. And as you go into chapter 7 and chapter 8, again Luke tells us that the church, as they lived out their faith, were growing in numbers and growing spiritually at the same time. And Stephen, one of those early deacons, sadly was arrested tried, and then he is put to death. He's stoned to death, in fact, and you see that in chapter 8. And so to give you a little bit of the background, let me remind you of this. We're about, excuse me, I've gone in the wrong direction there. Let me remind you of this. That's what was happening with Stephen, and this morning we're about to be introduced to Saul, whom we know, of course, as the Apostle Paul. And Chuck Swindoll, on his book on Paul, suggests this, and describes him very well. He says, we know him as an inspired author, an amazing teacher, and patient mentor, a colossal figure who strode boldly onto the stage of the first century, excuse me, onto the stage of the first century world, and left an indelible signature of greatness never to be forgotten. Swindoll goes on and says, his life, magnificent. His ministry, extraordinary. His teaching, unprecedented. No other person in the Bible, aside from Christ himself, had a more profound influence on his world and ours. And that is certainly the case And so this morning, as we begin to look at Paul, it is worth remembering the context of chapter 9, what happened in 7 and 8 after the stoning of Stephen. And there we read in Acts 6-7, remembering that the church was expanding, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And then in chapter 7, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul as they were stoning Stephen. And then, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. And those are those early incidents in which Saul is mentioned. And then as we move into chapter 8, we read, And Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Saul at this point was probably in his late 20s, early 30s. Saul brought up, of course, as you know, in the town of 
Tarsus in southwest, southeast Turkey. It was a busy, bustling metropolis. It had a rich culture of art and science. It was strategically placed between the Far East and ancient Rome. It was uh, inundated with merchants and trade. And so Paul himself was influenced with all of this growing up. His parents were Pharisees, in other words, steeped in Jewish nationalism and the Mosaic law. He could speak, of course, Greek, Aramaic, working knowledge, certainly, of Latin. He was given a first-class education, moved to Jerusalem, probably in his early teens, and sat at the feet of a Pharisee called Gamaliel, where he received his formal instructions. And in fact, for those of you with good memories and sharp eyes, you will remember in Acts chapter 5 last week, Gamaliel was mentioned as a man who spoke to the Jewish Sanhedrin and was able to say to them, do not persecute these men. If God is in this, you will only be fighting against him. And so we saw Gamaliel last Sunday morning. Now, having set all of that as the context, we now come to chapter 9. And chapter 9 opens with those well-known words, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Persecution had broken out in Jerusalem. People had scattered. Only apostles and a handful of disciples remained. And folks were heading north to Damascus and then further north toward Tarsus and into Asia Minor, modern day Turkey as we know it. And so we find as the church was living out their faith, persecution broke out. And so the question is this, what do you do when opposition comes? Because here was this young man, Saul, absolutely determined, not simply to rid the city of Jerusalem of anyone who had a genuine faith in Christ, but in fact, he was following Christians to other cities. And he wanted to root them out and to persecute them. All of that was taking place. He had a letter of authority from the Jewish authorities. The distance between Jerusalem and Damascus, about 135 miles. So it was a good journey back then. And Saul was, in every sense, borderline out of control. He had an innate sense of hatred and felt utter contempt for these new Christians, blinded by hatred, in fact. I remember many years ago watching a James Bond movie, and I can't remember all of the details, but Bond's boss says to him at one point, after a very difficult experience, she looks at him and says to him, I think you are so blinded by inconsolable rage, you do not know who to hurt next. That's the Apostle Paul. Fanatical belief, fury and anger that was 
eating away at his very soul. He was in a dark place. His only thought was persecution of Christians. Now, what did Paul know of the gospel? Well, he heard Stephen speak at his death. And I imagine in Saul's mind, he was saying to himself, now, how can this carpenter from Nazareth possibly be the Messiah? He cannot possibly be the Messiah. In addition to that, he was arrested. He was legally tried and then put to death. He cannot be the Messiah. He's a criminal. And as for all of these people talking about this miracle and that miracle, and that he raised from the dead, well, people will believe what they want to believe. It's just impossible to reason with these people. The only way to persuade them is to eradicate them. That was Saul's mindset. And then on the road to Damascus, Everything changes. Everything changes. Saul meets the risen Christ. He was not ready for it. There was no finger in the sky as he was riding on the road to Damascus. No divine writing calling on Saul. There was no burning bush. There was no passing prophet who talked him into faith. But as Saul is heading towards Damascus, he meets the risen Christ. He falls from his horse as the glory of Christ absolutely blinds him. And as he is lying there in the dust, Jesus speaks to him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He's absolutely oblivious to who this is. He is face to face with God himself. And Saul is spiritually blind and cold to the gospel. He had no sense of what on earth was going on. And suddenly he's overwhelmed by the grace of God. Now please remember... What had been going on in Saul's heart? Saul would pray five times a day. He knew the Old Testament by rote. He would say particular prayers at particular points each day. He would be regular in worship at the synagogue and at the temple. He would participate in all the feast days and holidays and the sacrifices of temple life. When he said, the Lord is my shepherd, he had it memorized. But he had missed the heart of it. Because for Saul, his religion was little more than rote and ritual. There was no personal experience, no deep abiding intimacy with God No peace within, no tender touch, no sense of God wrapping him in his arms and holding him close. No comfort, but a rigid, cold experience. And unless you could measure up, you were to be eradicated. 
That's what had been going on in the heart and soul of Saul. All of his education, all of his brilliance with language, all of his debating skills as a formerly trained Pharisee led to nothing. And here he is, face to face with Christ. And my question this morning for you is this. Is there within you that deep, personal relationship with the risen Christ? Is there within your heart and soul and mind that longing for times of prayer? Those moments of quiet devotion that lift your heart and soul heavenward, that bring comfort and intimacy as you enter into his presence and sense his comforting touch, the tenderness of his love, the transformation he brings, the joy and the thrill of walking with him. Is that a living reality for you? This morning is one of those occasions when we ask those deep, searching, personal questions. Do you know him? Are you walking with him? Do you know the thrill of genuine, heartfelt, authentic faith? That's what was going on with Saul. Never to be the same again. I imagine he found that difficult to believe. I imagine, given all he'd been through, all he thought he knew was now being turned on its head and the cold, legalistic lifestyle of rote and ritual was now gone. And from that day on, when Paul would pray, the Lord is my shepherd, he knew it to be real. Is that where you are this morning? God was doing business with Saul. Can you put your hand on your heart and say, Yes, I know what it means to know him. I know what it means to follow him. And I cannot wait to grow and mature in my faith as I walk with him. There is nothing quite like it. And this morning, this may well be your road to Damascus. It may well be you used to follow him. Your prayer life was active and exhilarating, enthralling, but it's been some time. And whether you're at home watching or whether you're here in the sanctuary, this is a morning to examine your relationship with him. And if you are not there, This is a morning for saying, Father, please forgive me. 
Change me. Strengthen me. Let me take this step of faith and let me sense your hand at work in my life, transforming me, allowing me to begin again. Forgive me and let me begin with you. And that's exactly what took place in the life of Saul. But please notice this. Saul was not the only person whom God called that morning. Notice the rest of the chapter. In chapter 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. Come and place your hands on him and restore him to sight. Now, we would naturally think that Ananias would be overjoyed, thrilled. But there are parallels between Saul and Ananias. And Ananias found it hard to believe what God was saying, just as Saul had found it hard to believe. And notice how Ananias responds. And he says, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man, all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. He's almost as if Ananias is saying, Lord, you've got to be kidding. Saul, come on! Are you kidding me? If I go anywhere near him, I will be arrested and put in prison. And here was God, not only surprising Saul, but also Ananias. And notice what God says. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And that's exactly what happened. Now please notice this. And I can't honestly tell you how many times I've read this passage before I noticed this. But when Ananias responds, what does he do? He does three things. Number one, he demonstrates remarkable courage because God has called him. And Ananias is filled with courage I don't think he had earlier that morning because that's what the call of God does. When he calls, he enables and equips And when the call of God comes into our life, our only legitimate response is, Yes, Lord. And so he demonstrates remarkable courage in being willing to go and meet with Saul. Number two, he demonstrates remarkable faith. Because he steps out into the unknown. He doesn't know all of the circumstances of what he's willing to walk into, but he is willing to go anyway. And thirdly, his faith produces action. 
And when you find yourself in a quandary and you bring it to God in prayer, please remember that when He begins to work in your life and answer that prayer, your threefold response is what? Number one, you demonstrate remarkable courage by following his call. Number two, you step out in faith into the unknown and trust him who knows the unknown for the outcome. And number three, your faith produces action. You step out in obedience. And the point I wanted to mention about, I wasn't sure I saw this, is this. When God speaks to Ananias, he doesn't say to him, Now, Ananias, I have been working in Saul's heart and soul from the moment he was born. I have brought him to a point of climax. He is going to be someone who is extra special. He will write... 12 or 13 of the New Testament epistles. He will establish churches all over most of the known world. Saul, go. But what does God tell him? He tells him this. Go to the house on Straight Street. And there you will find a man named Saul. He is praying. He is praying. He is praying. Authentic, credible, heartfelt prayer cannot be manufactured or fabricated or done on a whim. But he's pouring out his heart to God. And I imagine Saul is doing exactly that. Saying, Father, I now realize who you are. The fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. The risen Christ is the Messiah. He's transformed my life. I am so sorry. I could not see it. Please forgive me for my past. Allow me to start again. Begin with me. Father, I give you my life. That's what's going on here. He is praying. Two weeks today is Easter Sunday. How will you prepare for that morning? What will be your priorities? Now, most of us, of course, will plan for family and friends and enjoy the holiday weekend. Others of us will be having guests in our home. Others will be preparing meals and are excited and looking forward to it. Of course. But are we putting the same preparation into the heart and soul? Will there be genuine, credible, authentic prayer between now and Easter? My prayer for us is, Father, grant to us a little glimmer of this passage as we move towards the joy and the celebration of Easter. May our prayer life this Easter be a prayer life marked by remarkable courage, a prayer life that reflects great faith stepping out into the unknown, And thirdly, a faith that produces action. It's hard to imagine a better way to prepare for Easter. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. And thank you for the deep challenge that it brings into our lives. And may we, over these next few weeks, as we move towards Easter Sunday, come face to face with you afresh. Stir us, excite us, equip us, allow us to live out our faith in obedience to the risen Christ, displaying remarkable courage, faith that produces action. And Father, let it begin with prayer. For we recognize that you are indeed our Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.